Hark! It's an 87th Precinct podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedural novels, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today we're looking at book number 51, the eerily prescient thriller Money, Money, Money from 2001. My name is Paul Abbott, and... As always, I'm joined by the old gang, Mr. Morgan Brown. Hello. And Mr. Stephen Royston. Hello. As we tackle this hefty story, um, you know, we'll do our best. There's a lot going on in this book. So there's a yeah, slight delay in getting this episode out to you, but it's been odd because we've been doing things like going outside of the house and going to places <laughs> and playing gigs and going to the cinema to watch sandworms and things like that. So that's all been quite nice, really, hasn't it? Um, so we're a few days behind schedule, but you know what? It doesn't matter, does it? We'll we'll live. Here we are, anyway. Thanks for bearing with us, everyone, and, and thanks for keeping uh, in touch on all the usual social media channels, which you all know by now are just search for Hark 87 Podcast and something will turn up. You know, that'd be fine. <laughs> yeah, so, hmm. Well, I've had a day. I was telling these gentlemen beforehand. I've been on BBC local radio today to discuss matters about novelty songs, which was something I wasn't expecting to be doing. I'm considered an expert, you know, because of my other podcast, The Head Ballet, which I haven't done any new episodes for for ages, but is out there if anyone wants to listen to it. What was the last song you did on that? It was... you remember? It, well, it was less a song, more as just a celebration of Neil Innes from the Bonzo ah, Dog yeah, Doodah Band, uh, with uh, I guess Laura Grimshaw, who is a producer at BBC Radio. But you know, if anyone likes weird and unusual songs, then go and look up the Head Ballet. If you like the Beatles, season two of mine and my brother's podcast about the Beatles is starting again uh, the Monday, the fifteenth of November. So shortly after this will come out. So busy, busy, busy. I know. Just the sound of my voice everywhere. <laughs> in every busy, busy, busy. You can't go in a money, single money, money. room in Bristol without hearing you. Yeah. <laughs> it's very strange. BBC Bristol. I don't know. Anyway, that was good, good fun, good experience. Right. So money, money, money is the fifty-first of the eighty-seven precinct books. We are in two thousand and one. And there's a, f- a few bits of publishing information and some bits about uh, Mr. Evan Hunter to get through. But we'll come to that after we've had a look at um, some of the things that were going on in 2001. And funnily enough, yeah, there's some stuff happens in 2001. Mm. So the ones I have selected to talk about is um, that on the 20th of January 2001, George W. Bush is sworn in as the President of the United States of America. <laughs> Yeah, he's going to have a good first year in office, isn't he? Mm. On the 18th of February, yes, I, when I almost started going down a rabbit hole reading about this one, um, an FBI agent called Robert Hansen is arrested for espionage, mm. and he ultimately received 15 consecutive life sentences hell. without parole. So basically, from the mid-70s onwards, he was just passing secrets to the KGB. What was his name? Robert Hansen. Hmm. So he's sort of acting in a double agent role, but ultimately just giving loads and loads of information to the KGB over a huge period of time. But it's that thought of 15 consecutive life sentences and no parole. That's... um, By me. Yeah, quite a thing. Yeah. On the 16th of May, over here in the UK... Our then Deputy Prime Minister, can you remember who it would have been, Steve-O? John Prescott. What am I going to say that he... Oh, oh, did he punch somebody who threw an egg at him? He did punch someone who threw an egg at him (laughs) in real, in Wales. The guy who threw this egg at him had a really big mullet. Yes, he did. He did have a big old barnet, yeah. And uh, John Prescott didn't think twice before he... uh, he... Or lamped in one. That's what Serves you want from right your politicians. <laughs> Just a, yeah, instant trigger punching reflex <laughs> from the Deputy Prime Minister. Uh, yeah, 7th of June is uh, the second Labour win for in the UK. So Tony Blair is the, is the Prime Minister. It's the second landslide victory. Remember those days where Labour could win a landslide victory in an, in an election? Oh, crikey. But 
You'll like this one, Steve-O. All right. 21st of June. 21st of June. The world's longest train runs in Western Australia. All right, okay. Probably one of those that went about 20 miles an hour. (laughs) Well, it was made up of 682 wagons, eight locomotives, and it was over four and a half miles long. Bloody hell. So I think we can all agree that's a long train. It's a longish train. It's probably full of lager, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Terrible Australian lager. (laughs) Went from the brewery to the outback somewhere. (laughs) I know we've got Australian listeners. I'm probably being terrible about Australian lager. Sorry. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, friends. (laughs) Although in the year 2001, uh, there was... The last of the Crocodile Dundee film, so perhaps it was full of Crocodile Dundee merchandise uh, yes, on its yeah. way to uh, an airport. Not that we're stereotyping Australia <laughs> by mentioning lager and Crocodile Dundee. Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> 10th of September, Charles Ingram is on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire oh, and yeah. wins a million pounds. <clears throat> hey, that's the one. Very good, yes. So he was the coughing major, wasn't he? So Major Charles Ingram, who was part of a weird sort of like a syndicate that got together to try and yeah. blitz the system to get onto game shows and yeah. win money. But did uh, yeah, it's not known that he definitely cheated, though, is it? It's all... Still a bit, all a bit weird, really. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's very, very odd. And they did a dramatisation of it um, last year or the year before. Yeah. Or something like that. The, <laughs> it itself was like inconclusive, really, wasn't it? You you watch that thinking, yeah, you still don't know for sure whether... Yeah, it was odd. But uh, obviously such a high-profile show at the time, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And, and, and he was the one who won that. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, very strange story. Then the day after that... Something slightly more dramatic, of course, is the 11th of September. It's the attacks on the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and um, in Shanksville, PA as well. There's a death of nearly 3,000 people, you know, casting a shadow over the 21st century that Mm -hmm. we're still living under. A ludicrously strange day to live through. I remember it very, very clearly. Because I was at work at uh, NatWest. I suspect you probably were as well. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where were you, Steve? Uh, I was in Dale House, about a few hundred yards up the road, I suppose, yeah. Yeah. Barclays. Watching it on the telly that they wheeled out like at school. Yeah, so once upon a time, we all worked uh, in banks, which is a strange (laughs) thing to think about. And that was at this particular time. So, yeah, when we get into money, 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 we all know about placement layering and integration of of money laundering. But, yeah, the World Trade Center attacks, I mean, it's it's just insane to think back. And to think that it's, you know, 20 years ago as well is is terrifying in itself. Uh, Because then the 18th of September, there's that that wave of anthrax attacks happens um, to all those news organizations which I think leaves five people dead and quite a lot of people ill. That's right. I remember because I was working in the oh, post yes. room at the bank and there was a, a lot of panic about that and everyone wearing uh, latex gloves and being extremely cautious about everything that came in for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Crikey. Yeah, so on the 20th of September, um, George W. Bush declares the war on terror, you know, in terms of attacking abstract notions and that's it yeah you could, because it's so easy to fight a war against uh yeah the concept of terror yeah about as effective as the war on drugs and yeah mm, yeah which uh that uh precedes the invasion of afghanistan on the 7th of october um and well you know uh, the other thing to mention from 2001 is stepping aside from that side of things is that's the year that the ipod is introduced Hooray. So that's, you know, a, a positive technological story. It changed, you know, has a big impact culturally as well. Anyway, so, mm-hmm. so yes, a heck of a year, 2001, really. Right. So when was the release of this book in all that action then? Well, <laughs> I can tell you that the publication date for this book was the 6th of September, 2001. Right. So literally... Well, I didn't know it was before. So, yeah, uh, and I don't know if your copies of the book have at the back of it the yes. author's note. Mine does. Where he reflects on what's <clears throat> happened. I don't know. 
I'm just checking. If it does, I missed it. Yours being an earlier one maybe doesn't. Yeah. So ah right okay so Steve-O hasn't read we the. We found a difference. Yeah, we're sort of jumping ahead comparing editions. No, mine mine ends with a uh, a daft. With the fat Ollie bit, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we'll come to the author's note at some point, anyway. But yes, as as anyone who's read this book knows, it features terrorism in a big city, and it came out before nine eleven. So, yes, when I said eerily prescient in the yeah. introduction, that is what I mean. Yeah. But, yeah, well, so um, while Steve-O catches up with the author's <laughs> note at the end, um, I will tell you a little bit about what was going on with Evan Hunter at the time in terms of his publishing work. In 2001, a book comes out a comp called Duet, which is a combination of a story called Driving Lessons and Pearls. Now, I've not read Pearls, but I have read Driving Lessons because it was published separately, a little novella. It's quite good, little, quite a good little thing. There's a short story called Activity in the Floodplain, which is in an anthology for the Mysterious Press. Our old pal Otto Penzler putting that out. There's an Evan Hunter novel called The Moment She Was Gone, which I have read. That's quite good. This comes out, money, money, money. Candyland also comes out in 2001, which is written by Evan Hunter and Ed McBain. I still haven't read that yet. Have you read it? Yeah, I've had, I, I don't know if I was that convinced by the sort of conceit of, of the, the two different personas. But it, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's well worth worth a look just to see how he does it. But Yeah. Well, how, Did, what, how does that stack up then? Yeah. <sighs> I, I, I mean, it's a, it's a good many years since I did read it, but it, it, it's a bit of an odd thing where he's he's trying to kind of mark out sort of stylistic differences between his two personas, but I, I don't know how convinc- convincingly it comes across. Mm. My favourite thing about it is the two different author photos. Oh, right, okay. Where he's trying to look uh, sort of um, like some kind of uh, gentle intellectual as Evan Hunter, and then he's got his sunglasses on and he's looking a bit gruff for Ed McBain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, he does have... The Evan Hunter voice and the Ed McBain voice are two distinct things. And you would notice it, say, reading uh, The Moment She Was Gone and then Money, 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 two books from that year. Yeah. Uh, if you're going through the process of deliberately combining the voices mm. against each other, I suspect that probably leads to it it's, not working quite as well. It's tricky. With the, the, trying to combine the two... Vo- compare and contrast the two voices while telling the same story is a difficult thing to pull off, and I don't know how convincing it was. Mm. Maybe I'll give it another go. Yeah, well, I'll get round to it eventually. Uh, the other thing that happens, um, Ed McBain-related, is that on the 30th of September 2001, the TV adaptation of the Matthew Hope story Three Blind Mice is on television with Brian Dennehy as Matthew Hope. All right, okay. So it was um, directed by Christopher Leach, produced by Ted Swanson. It was 100 minutes and it was broadcast on CBS. And I think I've got that somewhere. I think it was was up on YouTube or it is up on YouTube. Uh, I haven't watched it because I haven't read any of the Matthew Hope novels yet. So, but I didn't... Even knowing the little bit I know about Matthew Hope, I didn't imagine Brian Dennehy necessarily as the, the okay. shape of that man, but, you know, maybe he's exactly what... <laughs> Brian Dennehy can be many shapes, yes. I think you'll find. Well, I wouldn't want to pigeonhole the Dennehy <laughs> at any, any point. Right, so aside from all that stuff, which is publication stuff and stuff turning up, there's so much Ed McBain in the news stories at the time. And, of course, it's a point where lots of stuff's electronic, so tons of this is archived and easy to get hold of. But what's most interesting from our point of view Hmm. is that, say... uh, Well, this article's from The Hollywood Reporter in October the 11th, 2001, and it's headlined, McBain reports to precinct. Precinct being in inverted commas. And it's a report from Cannes, so presumably there was some uh, media showcase going on. Best-selling crime novelist Ed McBain has been signed to write the two-hour pilot for the drama series Ed McBain's 87th Precinct. The first project on recently formed Global Media Television's initial $100 million production slate. And so, clearly, as another attempt about to be made to get the 87th Precinct into a television form that McBain might be happy with, he's brought on board to write a pilot... McBain, whose real name is Evan Hunter, 
uh, has written 52 novels under the 87 Precinct franchise. 51, please. <laughs> he will also serve as creative consultant on the show, contributing in varying degrees to the rest of the 26-hour-long episodes. <sighs> so there could have been a full whack of Oof. solid... Maybe they made them and didn't release them. Yeah. Maybe out there somewhere. British writers Gavin Scott, John Goldsmith and Jim McGrath are completing teleplays for other episodes. Yeah, it was a part of a global media TV was launched two months ago by Tony Scotty who developed such franchises as Baywatch. Oh, <laughs> that bodes well. Yeah. David Hasselhoff is to take the lead <laughs> role of Steve Carella. Oh, amazing. <laughs> Pamela Anderson as Teddy. Yeah, and it does say, for, it goes down into some of the other things that they're going to be releasing this new global media TV company Mm. Uh, a second 26 hour series is in development called virtual conspiracy described as the fugitive in cyberspace what a 2001 notion with a major virtual reality element sounds amazing oh dear oh dear oh dear did they go bankrupt trying to make that well it said it was also developing a series called merlin and i think merlin probably came into being because something around that time Uh, there was a merlin rings of eight bell yeah wasn't there a Merlin thing that had what's his face from Jurassic Park in it? Uh, Sam Neill. Oh, possibly. Yeah, that might be that. Uh, but yeah, so there's huge production stuff going on. He's writing a new teleplay, and according to Variety in uh, October 2001, the two-hour pilot will be based on McBain's novel Sadie When She Died, which is a brilliant idea for mm-hmm. a start of a series for the Eighth Cent Precinct because it's a very filmable book. Yeah, I think we've talked about that before. Mm-hmm. But, of course, as we know, nothing comes of it. So, there you are. Thwarted again. What could have been? Still waiting for our call to to start the uh, casting process again. I know we gave up on doing that casting, but it it was just too much research and mental torment (laughs) trying to do it. That's it. Until until they they give us the budget to actually do it properly. Then we'll do it. Yeah, absolutely. That's what you want. You need the money. (laughs) I need money first. Um, Money, money, money. Yes, absolutely. And let's get into money, money, money. This book that is... I don't know whether to call it a stand-alone in its technique. It's, it's he's written thrillery things before, mm. but there is something about this that makes it quite unique, I think. Um, usual check, have we all read it before? Yes. Yes, yes. And I hadn't, so I'm oh. the only newcomer to this particular thing. Right, so this is maybe why it seems like it really stands out to me, because mm. you know, it's my my first time through with this thing. Oh, yeah, I should I should point out, Publishing-wise, America, this is published in Simon & Schuster and in Pocketbooks for the paperback edition. And in the UK, for both hardback and paperback, all the remaining books that come out in the UK are now in Orion. And they're quite common. You come across these quite a lot. So these are printed in quite big numbers, I think, as well. Quite nice editions, aren't they, the later ones? Well, an improvement to the ones that we've had for the Yeah, I think these are all all right. I'm not so sure about these combo designs and things like the one Morgan's got. But we'll get to that. (laughs) Yes. But this this particular one, I think, is is quite interesting. The UK edition, anyway. Decent. Let me, as a um, newcomer to the book, try and summarise. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Essentially, what we have is we meet a ex Gulf War vet, well, a Gulf War veteran who is now running illegal jobs across the Mexican border. We follow her and some money that she acquires from running a, a job. We don't really know what it is. Uh, she goes back to the city after she's done a job. It's heading towards Christmas, and a chain of events unfolds where she's robbed by someone. The Secret Service get involved because of the possibility of counterfeit banknotes. A body turns up in the zoo, in the lion's enclosure. Bunches of people seem to be looking at other bunches of people for money. So locally in the city, people also elsewhere. Another body turns up later. People are using false names. There's a small publishing house involved. For some reason, it seems very strange why they're in there, but you know that comes to be what it is. We, I think, I know why it's there, and we get lots of fat Ollie investigating alongside Steve Carella and friends. 
We don't get lots of other little subplots in this one. It's pretty much one thing all the way through. Or yeah. one thing that's all... T- Several things that all tie into one thing all the way yeah. through. I mean, the one thing is complicated enough without adding any f- further plots in, I think, isn't it? I yeah, mean, there's, n- there's no little side pieces with any of the rest of the squad here. So it's not a it's not a gang's all here type thing. It's You get a few cameos from one or two folk. So we've got murders, we've got robbery, we've got drugs, we've got terrorism, and... It's felt to me a little bit like the, particularly the terrorism thing. Actually, if you took that out, the 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 act of terrorism that's portrayed in this book, that the book wouldn't necessarily suffer, and it would still be quite a long eighty seventh precinct book. But I think it's in there just to illustrate a point about where the money from criminal activities is filtered and funneled, and the sorts of things that it ultimately ends up paying. Yeah, I think that's right, isn't it? Yeah, I think he's yeah it's part of a, his larger point about the, the kind of the evils of money really and money yeah. laundering and yeah and what you know what you compare somebody to buy drugs on the streets of a big city can ultimately find its way too I think really. yeah it kind of connects that sort of that really grubby kind of petty street level crime all the way up to sort of like really kind of high level kind of international stuff which is I guess the kind of thing that sort of, that James Elroy or people like that do do quite often in their their novels it's the first time you've ever really seen Ed McBain do something like that yeah yeah definitely I think it's it does have the feel of a different slightly different author's scope mm. because so much of this is and I think there's even a line in the book about the the city appearing like a small village when you compare it to the global scale of things going on and and so I think that's that's telling in there as well and I suppose the only thing we have alongside that as well is we have scenes with Steve Carella at home and with his family Mm. finally coming to terms perhaps with his father's death the events that happened around that and the death of Danny Gimp and a new man in his mother's life, which shocks him to the core. Indeed. There's certainly a lot going on. Oh, yeah, there is. I kind of, I remember I finished it and then I thought, mm, do I still totally understand what on earth's gone on here? Mm. Um, I think perhaps you, you're intended to feel like that, really. Because it also, not wishing to cut to the end, but it also ends with a quite a curious ending, doesn't it? Yeah. A slight... Um, well, a very much up in the air ending that uh, yeah clearly didn't intend to bring it all to a nice mm-hmm. conclusion anyway. Yeah, so I think you know the usual spoiler policies apply. Uh, as always, it's going to be impossible to talk about this without mentioning what happens to certain people at certain times. Probably fairly impossible to like, explain all the plot because it probably take about an hour to say <laughs> this happens, and then that happens, and then something other happens. Yep. But he has the character of that Will Struthers, doesn't he, as a, yeah. quite a useful little um, pl- device to pull various things together, doesn't he? Yeah, he has a, a hapless burglar, and he, he likes to do that thing about burglars believing they're the sort of gentleman criminals... Of things, but this poor burg I say poor burglar, like I'm. Yeah, yeah. It's, things happen to him somehow, and he ends up being a, a sort of, imp- yeah, like you say, an important thread to tie all these pieces together accidentally without meaning to. We well, quite. Uh, I think it must be a first for these where he does some burglarying, and then uh, he gets burgled himself in a peculiar way by <laughs> by by. By the uh, war veteran. Yeah. Quite a uh, strange way. There's a lot of toing and froing. I mean, the first chapter of this book is huge. There is so much going on in this first yeah. chapter of this book. I was no, I do my normal thing of I write myself a little pricey of each chapter as I go along, and it's like, this is going on for ages. Because <laughs> you have a whole sequence set flying across the Mexican border before you've even got to the city. And you also then have the robbery of the pilot, the burglar himself having the money taken off him by special agents, secret service agents, who you don't know if at this point if they actually are secret service agents. It does seem a bit sus, doesn't it? Yeah. Then you also have the pilot tracking down this burglar because he's managed to leave his glasses case behind, (laughs) (laughs) which conveniently has like the, you know, optician's address on and... Yeah, it takes her about ten minutes to find. 
<laughs> yeah. There's the way that the optician sort of rings her up later and says, yes, we found out whose the glasses they were. Um, is it all right for me to give you the address? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't advise you do that. <laughs> yeah, and then, yeah, and then there's some other people involved in the drugs trade come after this person. This is all in the first chapter, which is mad. But two things I will mention from the first chapter is when she gives her service number, it's actually um, Ed McBain's service number. Okay. So it's, I read it. This is how much research I've done in this <laughs> my s- silly life is I read the number 7145632 and I thought, that's Salvatore Lombini's, um, <laughs> Lombino's, uh, yeah, naval record number. Amazing. So it is, yeah. <laughs> A reference to Lizzie Borden as well, he throws in there in that first episode, which obviously he ties into his. That Indeed. first episode, first chapter even, yes. ties into his um, Lizzie story there. Mm-hmm. God blimey. But let's get straight onto this though, right? The pilot is discovered dead, naked, in the zoo, in the lion cage. And I want to ask you two, I'll ask Morgan first, how probable do you find it that if a corpse was in a lion cage and technically half that lion cage was in one precinct and technically half was in another that they would split the investigation. I find that highly probable. I think that's definitely what would happen. I'm absolutely certain they'd say, yep, there's a disembodied leg in that precinct. We'll have to split the investigation. That's absolutely certainly what would happen. (laughs) Yes, yes, I'm going to say that's 100% what would be the case. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying (laughs) that. Yeah, I think, yeah, that that is definitely true. And the other, maybe the the other kind of floor in the plotting here. I, I, I didn't think it very plausible that they would then shoot all the lions just because they wanted to, I don't know. Well, basically, what's amazing about this sequence is the police are there, including Fat Ollie. There's all the TV cameras. There's a rapid response unit. They're trying. They're going to have to retrieve this corpse so they can figure out whose corpse it is. Despite, they've done this bizarre thing where they split it across two precincts despite the fact that Fat Ollie's precinct only has a leg. Um, to stand on or something. But yeah, the vets trying, or the zookeepers are trying to get the lions out safely, but the anaesthetic doesn't work. And Steve Carella is attacked by a lion. Yes. Yeah. It's all, it's all a bit weird, that. Because surely, surely the vet, the, uh, the zoo people are able to get the lions in. Yeah. They must do it all the time. Yeah, you think. You would have thought so. And the... I mean, I assume he went and did his research and found out all this stuff about it, but the idea that they would get into a situation where a lion could come into a room full of people. Yeah. I mean, it sounds, certainly when they're having their discussion about the different kinds of tranquilizers and things, it does sound, that sounds like I have talked to people who know about this stuff and this is what they said. But yeah, it does seem, I I don't know how you get to the point where a lion can just attack Steve Carella. Yeah, it's mad, which ultimately causes... Ollie to have to shoot this lion, thus saving Steve's life. <laughs> and uh, Steve's very unhappy about the idea that he might be in debt to Ollie. Uh, refers back to something that happened with Kling in, in Lullaby as well in that in that sequence. <laughs> it's a very strange chapter, that one with the lion. It is. It is a, a curious one. But given the amount of action, it's curiously fairly quickly forgotten, though, isn't it? When you just... Yeah. Yeah, it's um, just clearly just goes into Steve Carella's mind and is part of his <laughs> the, all the things that have tormented him mentally over the many many years of his career. Yeah, it's, it's I don't know how to go further with this. How to keep going forward? Because if I try and keep, if we try and sort of <laughs> weave all these things together, like you say, we're going to be talking about this forever. There's, yeah, there's basically lots of toing and froing until it doesn't really make a huge amount of sense until they find. Uh, you witness a drugs sale, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Between a guy who seems a bit out of place in this transaction, curiously, you know, yeah. maybe a an amateur uh, selling to a uh, yeah kind of a distributor, and then you don't really know how that's gone until the following chapter where he's found in a dustbin with a bullet in his head. Yeah, and Ollie starts. Uh, investigating that as a separate case, doesn't he? Yeah. But it fairly quick... Well, to the reader, you 
he allows you to link them straight away, doesn't he, as the reader? That's right, yeah. But as the, 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 as the characters don't. It's an interesting scene, that, that sale, because you get the impression that, yeah, as you say, that the guy seems like an amateur, but then I think you, you see it from both his perspective and the other parties, and they both feel they've got an edge. Yeah, And you yeah. think, oh, I wonder what his edge is, and then obviously we, it takes a while for, for, for you to realise that he, he's not just... A sort of uh, what he seems, rep yeah. of a publishing company is there's a bit more going on too. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, and so uh, yeah, the, the, it's the link between those two crimes that allows the yeah uh, as a reader to understand more, and it's all surrounds this individuals who well individuals who work for this publishing company who are distributing NAF books that nobody wants to read in curious places in the city and also have distribution right on the Mexican border, which is a bit yes. uh, odd. And, yeah, eventually it's it's the coincidence during a discussion over some pizza or something like that where they the cops of the 8-7 who've got this corpse of um, Cass Ridley, the pilot, that they know is from a place called Eagle Branch in Texas and Fat Ollie has got someone who knew a sales rep in Eagle Branch, Texas. Who works for the same firm as the dead fellow. Yeah. Yeah, uh, um, yeah the firm which is particularly uh, standing out in Ollie's mind because he fancies them as his own publisher for his uh, novel in progress. Yes, brilliantly so, especially given what's coming up when we do the next book <laughs> as well. And but, a, <laughs> yeah. a, co- a continuation of the last novel as well is Ollie spends every opportunity telling everybody that he's learning to play the piano again. Which he's not doing a very good job by the sounds of things. Oh, no, it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, the secret. So all the way through, yeah, you're absolutely right. He's it, No matter who he's speaking to, I, I'm learning to play the piano, you yeah, know, night yeah. and day. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to learn this and four other songs I'm learning night and day. There's one where he says... He goes to <laughs> he goes to the the uh, the wife of the man who's been shot, and he, he's, yeah. he says, he thought- "I could play the piano for you to ease the pain," which <laughs> <laughs> is like the most sensitive thing Ollie's ever said yeah. in his life. But well, then you he- hear about how he's. He goes to his piano lesson. You hear how he's actually doing with night and day. He's, he's not not making it past the first three notes, which are all the same note. <laughs> he only yeah. says that to the grieving widow because he wants some upside down apple cake or whatever yes. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yeah but yeah i love the scene where he goes for his piano lesson and this i can feel the the poor piano teacher just just sat there not understanding why you can't hit three notes the same key three times night and day <laughs> and having taught music and occasionally being called on to demonstrate to, to try and get people to play things on pianos and keys and things like that Oh, I can sympathise with that. <laughs> oh dear me! But in his mind, he's playing it like, like the Art Tatum arrangement or something oh, yeah, like that, yeah. or Oscar Peterson or something <laughs> like that. He's, he's, he's not, he can't get past the first bar. Oh lord! Oh man! Well, he's willing. Yeah. Oh yeah. He's uh, quite happy to tell anyone he meets. He's very enthusiastic. Yeah. Yeah. So. We've got a cocaine dealer called Wiggy the Lid. It's a it's a catchy name. Does it not sound more like a stool pigeon's name from like a nineteen fifties book? Mm, yeah, yeah, maybe, probably, yeah, yeah. I I, I quite like a, the occasional like utterly madcap name. No, it's quite fun. Wiggy the Lid. Yeah, he's a cocaine dealer who's very co- fond of cocaine himself. Yeah, yeah. Money, money, money is the key to everything here because they they do have to follow a paper trail of of things this stolen money from the the pilot and then they discover a safe deposit box Mm -hmm. and that's when they talk about money laundering or smurfing which wasn't a term i'd heard uh, despite our all our years in the bank yeah working together um on tackling placement layering and integration Mm. can we remember the different stages of money laundering not really no (laughs) Yeah, I think but yeah, all, all the characters in this though are just totally motivated by money, are yeah. they? You know, Wiggy, the uh, the other guy from the publishing company, the pilot, yeah. Will Struthers, the woman at the, the Mexi- bank, the Mexicans who come, the, the guy from the Secret Service, the Mexicans, absolutely everybody. Yeah, and we're talking millions as well. Ultimately, aren't we? People try because people keep ripping people off, but pretending they haven't. Yeah, yes. and so. It, well, some people get genuinely ripped off and others just 
do the ripping off and then it doesn't go according to plan yeah. but pretend they've it, been yeah. ripped off it, 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 <laughs> feel, feels, feels massively aggrieved because his attempt to, to steal to... loads of money has backfired <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, yeah and um, we've not mentioned the curious um, AK-47 wielding yes the uh, the two uh, women that sort of yeah. crop up in different scenarios very mis- yeah. yeah very mysterious um Assassins, I suppose. Yes, yeah. Because we have a, a situation where we know that two men have come to see Cass Ridley before she winds up dead. But when they go to investigate, they find that she'd gone out with two girls, apparently drunk, but actually having had a ice pick in the <laughs> frontal lobe or whatever. Which will send you a bit woozy. Yeah, it can do that I to imagine. you. imagine. And so there are these mysterious, these two mysterious women the yeah the weird sisters which i think is a good name for those sorts yeah, of characters that's, that's pretty really. fun yeah they're not really given much explanation or backstory or anything like that are they they just kind of well that's just thrown in that's something that's interesting in this book i think is because we've got this little publishing house that seems to be at the heart of a lot of moving money around to do with presumably drugs and we get into a load of stuff about computers and things we don't really know who they are. Mm. And we, so we don't know who the weird sisters are and why they've got a code for everything on their computer yeah. and stuff. And why the secret, exactly what is going on with Secret Service with regard to them, too. There's a, a certain amount of when the, the, the people from Publishing House are brought in front of the law, there's a certain amount of you're in over your head, you should just back away. This is This is bigger than you. Yeah. This, going on. There's a lot of people telling the cops to back off, which is a trope that happens in quite a lot of sort of cop dramas and things like that and detective investigations. Yeah. You're in over your head, yeah. copper. It's but something this that is, ha- we've not seen in the, the HSN precinct at all, yeah. isn't it? So. This feels very ominous. Yeah. Because, it, I mean, should we try and tackle it now? Are the publishing house, who we know are funding bad things, you know, it's a front for something, are they the good guys? Because they're saying that they are. I think you you you're meant to think or suspect that they're government, some arm of like government, the CIA, CIA or something that's as a, as a, as a means of wheedling themselves into organised crime. Hence, the guy who dies in the bin can is an amateur, but he's not an amateur. Yeah. Um, and in the same way that they've they've sent out the secret service are involved in order to get make sure that the the funny money is almost reclaimed. Oh yeah, they they swap out the uh, the super bills for for regular hundred dollar bills. So yeah, that, uh... see, you're never really given a total definitive explanation of that, but I think you're meant to believe that they're all part of. And then the guy who runs the publishing company is very smug at the end, isn't he? About like you can do what you want, but you'll this isn't going absolutely yeah. nowhere. And I can tell you that now. And yet he's been, you know, issuing orders to assassins to go down and machine gun people in offices in the middle of the city. And yet, um, yeah, but, yeah. So it's a lot of hanging in the air stuff at the end. Yeah. So you know, obviously, it's at that later stage in the book that he throws in like the terrorist kind of follow-on standalone plot and I think yeah you know it's I suppose that is the ultimate aim of this publishing company in order to they have to infiltrate themselves into the whole money 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 network as it were quite happy to, to play this game and sort of you know kill a few people in the drug trade in order to yeah. Get to where the terrorism money is 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 coming through. I, I suppose yeah, I don't know. Well, there's there there is certainly a lot up in the air, not explained for you in in the same way that a normal thriller might be, but yet not often in the eighty seventh precinct. Yeah. Really, Th- that was my feeling. I might be wrong, but yeah. Um, so yeah, there's there's just so much going on, and we've barely touched on on. Um, much of it really there's the situation with with our burglar friend who is who keeps 
trying to pass money that turns out to be counterfeit. And obviously, I think it's a good example of the, the paranoia of the time is that people are, you know, these people who try to pay for bills with uh, uh, are doing what people started doing. I remember it, you suddenly lots more places were getting, uh, you know, a bit dodgy about taking large value yeah. notes, weren't they? And things like that. Uh, in the UK, it was like, if you're in England, people got very funny about Scottish notes because they're slightly oh, different yeah. security features and things like that. And so he's, yeah, there's a little tiny bit of money that's left behind that's not accounted for. So he keeps going off in to try and spend it on champagne uh, and and gets gets pulled in again. But there's a sequence where they take him to a bank to talk to a bank manager. That's that's very funny, that scene. Yeah, the bank manager who mistakes him for a, like the lieutenant. Of she these... thinks she's the lieutenant all the way through. <laughs> but I think it's got one example of like a McBain coincidence in character thing. It feels a little bit of a stretch is that this burglar has <laughs> basically, you know, his history involves him having been escaped from the Khmer Rouge at some point. Well, so he claims, doesn't he? And you're all, I think you're meant to think that he's just full of it, nonsense. It, it's hard. It, it, you, it, you, they don't necessarily make clear which of his things that he tells people are tall tales and which ones might have actually happened. But, yeah. yeah. But he knows a lot about Thailand, doesn't he? That yeah. the or is it Thailand or Malaysia or wherever Singapore or Singapore, where the lady yeah. in the bank knows a lot about. Yeah, so that's what I mean. You start to think in that scene, oh, maybe he's not full of nonsense. Yeah. Maybe some of these stories are true, but they clearly hit it off because she thinks he's the lieutenant and yeah. explaining about these uh, super bills and Iranian plates bought by the Shah and. Quite, yeah. quite a lot of quite a lot of his research into money laundering comes out in that yeah. passage. Yeah, it's a big writing. explanation yeah. chapter. Even though, if like I say, it seems very coincidental that the manager of this bank once worked at a bank in Singapore and knew the person who'd written on these notes. And this guy Struthers, the the burglar, had also once lived in Singapore and knew where it was. It's like, oh, couldn't they have just eyes met across a crowded? counter and fallen in love rather than actually like that much coincidence but yeah i think it was funny that she thinks he's the lieutenant yeah, all through that. that even though he's <laughs> he's quite a good character really it, struthers i think yeah, he's he, funny he's, it, yeah you, you end up do end up sort of like feeling quite sympathetic towards me even though he is obviously fairly dodgy but he's yeah he's he's quite engaging isn't he yeah he is but it, but he's most important bits yet to come really yeah indeed yeah, I mean, a couple of things to mention. There's another section where um, someone misremembers Ollie's name as Ollie Watts yes. again, which is another dig at um, that John Connolly book that we mentioned in the, in the last episode. Yeah, he's not letting him off easily with that. No. And there's a reference to the statue of a guy called William George Douglas Ray, who in the book is described as, and I'm just find the page here, they were walking out of the Headley building towards the square across the street with its statue of William George Douglas Ray, the gentleman's scholar who had captivated the heart of the city with his grace, his charm and his sparkling wit. So obviously I looked it up and William George Douglas Ray, um, who actually only died on the 15th of September this year, Ooh. the real human being. He was born in 1930 in Scotland, went to drama school. He was in the in the RAF for national service, I think, um, came back, became a theatrical agent, then became a literary agent, okay, and sort of divided his time between the UK and New York, and so clearly was someone that met McBain and possibly had stuff to do with him when he was doing theatre things. Because I think this guy did that a lot of theatre yeah. and literature stuff together. But yeah, I found a little thing in an obituary that described him as he was always dapper, witty, elegant, and debonair. Which ties in with this yeah, description, right. which I think is one of the sweetest things oh, that Bain's put in his books, yeah. you know, to say that much about a person. So yeah. clearly, uh, William George Douglas Ray was a much liked friend. And, yeah. yeah. So there oh, you go. Nice. Right, let's try and pull this towards an end. Let's deal with the terrorism thing. Mm. McBain, as, you know, as we say, this book comes out just before 9 11, and the act of terrorism here is one that takes place in a concert hall on in comparison a small scale mm. but it's terrifying to read this knowing when this book comes out and to think that th- that this was enough in the air that during his research for the book that this felt like a reasonable thing to write as a possible outcome you know. I, I suspect like everyone he spoke to about money laundering would have said bah, 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 you know funding terrorism and he, he you know he would have thought well I, I kind of need to get that aspect to the the, the 
the the tail in really. If it had happened after, you'd have thought oh, he's just kind of shoehorned it in, you know, just yeah. to just to cover that angle. But clearly, as a result of his research, I would have thought. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's insane. So they pick a target of of a concert hall, which uh, poor Will Struthers in his relentless quest to be in the wrong place at the wrong time um, ends up going with this to to watch this concert with this bank manager and in a very classic 87th precinct thing the planned act of terrorism which is planned down to the minute very much like a deaf man scheme goes wrong because of something very normal as in one of the people leaves the theatre during the music and isn't allowed back in until the end of the first movement of a piece of music which they couldn't have planned for although it does happen in you know in theatres and things thus throwing off the timings oh god it's a hell of a scene it's yes and so yeah and will struthers becomes well he becomes a bit of a hero doesn't he yeah he um although i don't know whether i wasn't paying much attention reading it but i wasn't quite clear how on earth he couldn't have died it seems like a lot of other people very much around him died i don't know quite how he survived but but he survives and successfully sells the rights to his life for one and a half million dollars somehow in hospital. So, yeah, so I wasn't quite clear how he didn't um, didn't perish. Uh, but, uh, yes, he clearly saved the lives of many others. Yeah, so he, he finds himself drawn into an act of heroism at this, at this point, which could have killed him. And he's... Is it before or after that that he persuades the bank lady into some harmless... Corruption, harmless corruption. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, as he tries to uh, persuade, it's, her, well, it's it's after that. So, it, yeah. yeah, he's come up with this scheme and he's trying to get this bank manager on board, and she seems quite willing once she finds out. Yeah, but yeah, it, the the nice thing for him is he does something fairly heroic and ends up financially rewarded for it, so he doesn't have to be a criminal yeah. anymore. Yeah. We assume. Well, yeah, we hope. But he's quite a funny character because when he first appears in the book, you wouldn't have thought this guy's going to be in it all the way through. Uh, more to the point, be a, a hero at the end. But um, yeah, right. Okay, um, we're going to have to try and sum this all up. I mean, oof. it's it's. You, you, you would have listened to the last forty minutes, and we've been trying to explain it, and you would still be not really yeah. none the wiser. And it it is really one that. Uh, yeah, it's very densely plotted, I would say. Yeah, it is. And I think the the Corella character moments are quite good, though, as well. There's yep. not much of it, but I think they're quite important. Yeah, it was nice that uh, they address his um, friendship with Danny Gimp. Yeah. I don't know if that's just because he's realised that he didn't really look at it in the last book, or if he was always planning to actually look at that mm. this time, I guess his emotional arc for Steve Carell and maybe that was just part of it and there's a lot of stuff that he's been putting off dealing with which he finally kind of addresses um, all at once here and I guess it's a bit of an emotional catharsis for him in a way. Yes, he ends up in a situation where his mother slaps him across the face and Teddy's berating him for the amount he's drinking and stuff like that and there's talk about how scared he is doing the job. He has quite a touching scene with Maya Maya as well you know, where he, he... Sort of confesses this to him, as well. So there's there's not much of it, but what there is is is, yeah. is good character stuff, really. Definitely. And that's sort of essentially how the book ends is on Corella's reconciliation with his mother and sort of his willingness to try and let some of the past go. Yeah, it's it's nuts. This book, it is, <laughs> it is nuts. And so yeah, the way that certainly, as we've said, the mine and morgan's edition of this ends is an afterword by the author explaining that he began writing the book in april 2000 started the actual writing at the end of may at the beginning of may went away came back started writing it he'd finished it by um 20th december 2000 and its official publication date is 6th of september 2001 and what she was about to start a book tour and as he gets to wherever he is on the on that tour, it, basically everything's cancelled. All domestic flights are grounded. He has to drive. He drives back to New York with a journalist friend. Yeah, the words "follow the money" resonated every time I opened a newspaper or watched television. 
Um, and I pray that smaller terrorist attacks like the one depicted here will never come to these shores. It's odd for the real world to be quite... So we know that all these things are realistic. One of the reasons we like these books is that they feel realistic. But it's odd for it to feel so realistic because it's, you know, to have that literal note in there saying that as well. Yeah. <laughs> Let's sum it up and then I'll give you some contemporary reviews before we uh, sort of uh, close down this episode of insane massive bookness <laughs> so i think i'll come to morgan first for his overview and uh, rating on this occasion okay um yeah it, it is an interesting one uh, as you say like a, a, a bit standalone in in sort of the, the way it's it's done as this sort of more kind of big picture thriller um there are some daft bits as as we've noted in terms of uh, that realism that comes from the, the terrorism isn't carried through to things like the, the daftness with the um, the lion enclosure. And yeah. I, I, I quite like that to some extent. There's a sort of... The, the part of me that, that enjoys, you know, Chester Himes novels will always enjoy yeah, some yeah. madcap shenanigans with <laughs> different precincts fighting over a... Uh, different bits of a body in a lion enclosure. So I, I, I can cope with that. And, you know, people call Wiggy the Lid and um, crazy machine gun wielding blondes tearing through the offices of uh, small publishers. And I, I, I quite like that. Um, I, I think there's, there's a lot going on. It's not necessarily the most totally coherent or focused of, of, of his novels, but... It's very enjoyable. I'm going to give it a solid uh, 80 police shields. 80 police shields. Right, Steve-O. Yeah, I think um, I would concur with those comments. Yeah, I think uh, Fat All is always a very good value character, isn't he? he you is, know, yeah. uh, action and mayhem and a lot of daftness always follows him. I don't think um, we ever even mentioned the excerpt from his book either. Did we? No, no, we didn't. No, so perhaps not... I'll very quickly mention it. Yeah, so he, at the very, very end of mine, anyway, because uh, he's going on about how he's going to write this book. When he meets the publishers for the first time, he's like, obviously, they're not publishers and they're yeah. <laughs> government slash drug. But they're telling him about this book that he's going to write, and then there's a little uh, Bad Money, a novel by Oliver Wendell Weeks, <laughs> and his character. He's detective first grade Oswald Wesley Watts, who's <laughs> called Big Aussie Watts, as he was affectionately known to the residents of Ruby Town. Yeah. <laughs> um, Not diamond back anymore. And um, yes, it's quite a good little uh, little uh, page, really, yeah. at the very end. Yes, Tall so. and handsome, slender of waist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very silly anyway. Um, yeah, so no, I've, I've I've greatly liked it, and I would give it eighty-five. Eighty-five. Right. Okay. Well, I was as we established, I was the only first-time reader of this. It's like reading all of Breaking Bad in some way, because Breaking <laughs> as Breaking Bad as it goes along becomes more and more big scale to having these huge organisations set up to conceal drug manufacturing yeah. and sales and stuff like that and it, you know it's amazing how much this sort of story could have been spun out into a huge series covering all that sort of stuff itself yeah. you know it's yeah it's odd that the scale takes you know the scope of it is often outside of the city ollie weeks is really great the ludicrous stuff is ludicrous and i do <laughs> i do wince at those coincidental moments so, you know we know coincidence happens, but some of it yeah, got me a little bit. And it did take me some thinking about to try and work out who was who, even if I do, I might possibly not know still at the end of it, but presumably that's the point. Well, See, yeah. Once upon a time, you would have had passages in there, them arguing about first man up and whose case it was. But like, clearly this stage, he just doesn't even bother. He just like, Soddy, I'll just have both of them investigating the same crime. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's an excuse to get Ollie. And I just genuinely do not think that they would go, oh, there was a, a leg in your section of the precinct. Because <laughs> technically on a map, this is yours. They would have just given it to the 87th, wouldn't they? Well, half the time he's desperate to get rid of cases, isn't he? You know, yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he's moved the precincts around again as well to, to, 
to permit that to happen because at one point the 87th didn't cover the park it was just next to it and another precinct covered the park so he's he, you know but that happens in, in, in oh yeah I'm sure, hmm. sure there was some kind of uh, rezoning going on in the city I'm sure there was yeah but yeah, it's it's an amazing read, and to think that it's just the fifty first book, and he can turn out something like this, mm, mm. it's is astonishing, really. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to go as high. I'm going to go seventy five, but of course, that does leave us with a grand Kenneth um, total of police shields numbered eighty. So it's a solid eight out of ten, and it is a solid eight out of ten. Yeah, I, I think, think this so. one, really. So, a quick roundup of some stuff from the time. We always turn to Marilyn Stasio in the New York Times, first and foremost, on a review published on the 9th of September 2001. McBain plays fair and square with the complications that arise from this clever setup over and over. He keeps telling us to keep an eye on the money, which slips through more hands than a third grade bathroom pass once you factor in the Harlem drug dealers, Mexican gangsters, Arab terrorists, United States government agents, and small press publishers. Brackets don't ask. At the same time, McBain throws in such hilarious distractions that you might forget the calendar and think it was April Fool's Day. I mean, I don't think it's that funny, but I suppose the Wilbur Struthers stuff is is quite an amusing that's, thread. That's pretty funny. Yeah. And Olive Week's pretty funny. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and we have a review in the Wall Street Journal from the 27th of September 2001, so post 9-11. It says, In a small town in a world grown smaller too... Money, money, money starts on the anniversary of Pearl Harbor Day and comes to involve a group of international terrorists, one an Afghanistan-trained veteran of Osama bin Laden's Al-Qaeda, intent on bombing a cultural landmark. Uh, There are echoes and foreshadowings of recent events. Indeed, reading this entertaining and slickly done novel is an eerie experience. One can only hope, as the 87th's stolid crew helps its city once more be safe, that life imitates art in return. Fair enough. Fair enough, indeed, yeah. And then there's a few, a couple of bits from um, UK things. So the Sunday Times has an advert on the 13th of January 2002 uh, about McBain being over in London to do a talk. So American crime writer Ed McBain talks about and signs copies of his latest book at Ottakers, The Exchange, SW15. Mm. It would cost you one pound to go and see him, which you could then redeem against the book. (laughs) (laughs) One pound. And there's a review of it on the Sunday Times from the May 19th, 2002, which presumably when the paperback comes out. Uh, Ed McBain's Money, Money, Money deals with the green stuff's effortless passage through the world, often wafting behind it a thick cloud of cocaine. As ever, McBain's characters are richly varied and effortlessly well-drawn. At times, things are more than a little implausible, although with eerie prescience, the book ends with a warning about a terrorist attack on New York. Isler. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, I've got tons more. I can't possibly go through all of it, but like, yeah, like I say, did loads of press, loads of interviews at the time. I've got a transcript from a CNN thing as well, uh, where they talked to him about money, 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 and that was on February two thousand and two, and it's talking about Hunter saying, in fact, it was all spinning around terrorism, and I thought this can't really be happening, and so it's that stuff's there. I've got a, a thing called What Book uh, from the Daily Mail yeah. from 25th of January 2002 asks authors what book are you reading? He's currently reading Dinner at the Homesick Restaurant by Ann Tyler. Uh, what book would you give to Osama Bin Laden? <laughs> Which is a strange question. That huh? is a strange question, yes. And his theory is he would give him the complete works of William Shakespeare because uh, exposure to the most beautiful work ever created by man wouldn't that make him understand the human condition better? Fair enough answer that, really, mm-hmm. given it's a stupid question. Yes. Uh, which book left you cold? And it is The Corrections by Jonathan Franzen. Oh, I, I thought it was rather good. <laughs> well, uh, what are you going to do? Uh, he says the pre-publication hype, the fatuous interviews with the author, and his final <laughs> dismissal of Oprah Winfrey finally overwhelmed whatever merits the book may have. So I think it's more that he doesn't like Jonathan Franzen <laughs> rather than the book. Somebody else he, uh, yeah. he's got a beef with. Yeah, there was some controversy with him not wanting to be in the Oprah Winfrey book club, I don't know. Well, I don't know anything about Jonathan Franzen, so I couldn't possibly speak to it. Yeah, it's a good book. What are you going to do? Well, anyway, there we go. That's Money, Money, Money from 2001. And if you're crying out for more Fat Ollie Weeks, well, the next book is Fat Ollie's Book from 2002. And I've sort of been looking forward to this for ages. (laughs) I've not read this in a long time, so it'll be interesting to come to it now, having gone sequentially through Ollie's story in the in the series. Right. 
Indeed. Okay. Join us in the bonus episode for our look at the book covers and mm. some other rubbish from 2001 cultural highlights. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so until then, I'll get Steve-O to say goodbye. Goodbye. I'll say goodbye, goodbye, and so will Morgan. Very well. Well.